genetic topic we pretended and uh, someone followed along behind uh, with a sticky note every time someone touched something <laughs> and left some virus behind and there was all these yellow sticky notes all, all the way through the lift and <laughs> in the lobby area so then um, this was like about five weeks ago before we thought about it carefully um, so then realised that just getting the patient from one place up to theatre um, without contaminating the whole hospital or spreading the virus so everyone yeah, walk past it's actually, <laughs> it's actually quite a challenge in itself yeah Um, hi everyone, welcome back to the podcast. It's only been three and a quarter months, I think, since I last did a recording. Um, a few things have happened. Not really, everything's everything's pretty much the same, isn't no, it? Pretty much. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've, uh, um, we had Christmas, New Year. I went overseas to Vietnam, and um, there seems to be some sort of virus circulating around the globe, which um, seems to have changed things a little bit. So, we um, I've got Matt uh, Rockledge back joining me for a, a bit of a discussion. Um, we thought we might talk a little bit about obstetrics and anaesthesia and, and um, maybe just, we haven't got any answers, but we just thought, thought we'd talk about some of the issues that have come up in relation to the so, uh, so-called virus which is circulating and, which, and how it might have changed some of the things that we're doing or all things, the issues that we've had to deal with. Uh, what have you been up to in the last three and a half months, Matt? Anything oh. exciting? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Spend quite a bit of time at home, actually. Yeah, garden's looking great. Have you um, have you watched that new Tiger documentary on Netflix? No, I I've heard all about it, but um, apparently there's been some tweets from Donald Trump saying that he's going to um, exonerate him because he's obviously there's obviously nothing else important for him to do at the moment than watch Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, so yes, um, so Matt, uh, Matt and I have been sort of um, along with lots of other people in our uh, in our hospital and department, you know been asked to sort of try and rearrange things and get our head around some of the issues that having um, a, a global pandemic uh, of COVID-19 and the sort of things, the issues that we've had to deal with. Um, we're going to try and st- stay away from all the other sort of general things that mm. I think there's been a million podcasts and um, media reports and stuff and just stick to the things, how it relates to how it's changed obstetrics. Yeah, uh, that's a good idea. Yeah. Um, so, um, I guess, what have we, what have you heard about, or what have you read about in, in relation to the effects of COVID nineteen on pregnant women? Well, I guess uh, I'm always looking for positives in this disease, and one is that it's, <laughs> it's not taking out the kids, and yep. uh, it doesn't seem to be targeting younger people predominantly. Though obviously some people are getting quite sick with it, um, but unlike some other infections, um, pregnancy doesn't seem to be. Um, prone to uh, developing severe symptoms yeah. and signs as a result. So I'm not sure how many, uh, if there's been lots of the you know, high-level publications, because there's probably, you know, this is virus has only been around three or four months, and um, there's a sort of some experience has been shared by some places around the world, like China and Italy, mm. uh, where they've had, you know, obviously pregnant women with the with the virus. And the impression I get, Matt, from from what I've read and heard, is that. Um, some of them get sick, but doesn't seem to be, you know, and really sick. But it seems to be about the same as the, as any other sort of sample of the of the adult population. Um, so that's reassuring in that yeah. it's not worse, but still bad because it's um, obviously you know what about one percent of people die or point five one percent of people seem to be succumbing. So I think there may be a um, 
another part of it, and that is the effect of this disease just on the care of obstetric patients per se, yeah. because it's going to um, you know, potentially impair what we do anyway to lots of people. So the care that they might normally get may be compromised yep. because of being COVID-19 That's right, yes. Everything so, gets, so there is something yeah, to, to look out for. It's harder to be in the room and keep an eye on them, it's, and it's harder to do things quickly when things yeah, when, when emergencies maybe occur. Maybe reluctance for pregnant women to even come to hospital, maybe yeah. put off some of their symptoms that they normally would need to come and see. That's right, yeah. So someone who... Um, you know, they're scared that they're going to get catch a disease from someone in the waiting room, so they just don't yeah. come to their antenatal appointments and things like that. Yeah, I agree. Um, so some of the specific issues that I've heard talked about is people sort of asking, you know, um, what about uh, healthcare workers who work <coughs> in uh, in hospitals and um, or in settings where they where um, they might be exposed to COVID patients, and if if they're pregnant, what's what's their stance on that? And I did uh, have a quick read around before you. Um, sat down and so the Royal College of Obstetrics and Gynecology in the UK have mentioned something about this and they said um, that you know, we do know that in general um, with influenza and I think with SARS that um, pregnant women were considered a vulnerable population and so they think that um, we should consider uh, use the same consideration for people who are pregnant uh, mm. with this pandemic as well and try and protect them from from um, High-risk situations, so a bit like other yeah, people who have um, other other medical conditions, um, and then there's been a few um, case reports, or, or people have talked about in, in uh, uh, various settings that COVID patients can sometimes have um, thrombocytopenia, uh, and then counter to that, they're, they're also um, might be more prone to having um, thrombosis. Mm-hmm. So I guess those are issues that might affect us when we're managing a pregnant woman we're yeah uh, and then there has been some discussion about also about the use of steroids in COVID um, I think the general impression I get is that you know using it to treat the pneumonia is um, not thought to be um, uh, any evidence for that at the moment but um, from some of the um, centres in um, Italy and France where they have, have had to treat some um, Sick pregnant woman, they're, they're still using steroids for fetal reasons, like mm-hmm. you know, cel- you know, the celestone that we usually give to um, premature babies to try and help with their lung maturation. Yeah, that's <coughs> my understanding is the guidance is unchanged. Yeah, so pretty much do, do what you normally do. Yeah, yep. yep. Um, so I think that's about all I wanted to talk about in the in the disease side of things and how it affects the mothers. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if there's anything else that you've thought of. I did. Well, we've got a little note over here about talking about um, vertical transmission. Uh, so I don't think anyone knows that these are just, like I said at the start, you know, these are just issues that people have discussed, and I think no one has an answer yet, and probably won't until the pandemic's over and we look back. But the question, questions have been raised: is is it transmitted vertically to the fetus? Uh, so there have been, I think, some differing opinions, but maybe there have been some cases or yeah, suspected I mean, cases. Time's done weird things, hasn't it, over the yeah. last six weeks? Yeah, um, and if you were to look back at some of the original um, studies that came out and uh, guidance, it was very clear there is no vertical transmission. Yeah, but now um, they're questioning now a little they're bit. Yeah. questioning whether they're happening in some cases yeah. subsequently. And I think we realised that with this disease, we're learning a lot over a very short period of time. Yeah, and everything that we say now could be completely wrong in a, in a matter of <laughs> exactly. a matter of minutes or hours. Might already be wrong, Roger. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We're, we just haven't been following Twitter closely enough. Um, so I think uh, we should assume that fetuses, when they're born, uh, uh, 
in label order in theatre, they could potentially have COVID and so probably treat them as such. And mm-hmm. then, um, uh, interesting talking to one of our neonatology colleagues, I think the, you know, most places around the world are still encouraging breastfeeding. And then the mothers are supposed to, um, you know, obviously try not to give the baby COVID by you know, wearing a mask and mm-hmm. good hand hygiene. Uh, and quite quite interestingly, um, the neonatologist I was talking to said, you know, as when the mother develops antibodies and gets over the illness, she'll be passing those on mm-hmm. to her child through breast milk. So there's an advantage yeah, to breastfeeding. Yeah. Um, all right. Um, so next thing we could talk about is PPE, a very anxiety-forming. <laughs> <laughs> There's probably, there's once again, more um, issues than there are answers, and it seems to be, I don't know if everyone else's uh, experiences, people who are listening, um, I know from what I've read that everywhere around the world, this is a very uh, emotional topic. So what what are the issues? I think rightly so, you know, there's the very base of what we do, and we need to go in feeling protected, feeling comfortable, feeling that that we're trained in how to put it on and put it off. Yep, and I think people are a bit upset by all the confusion, even at the high levels in the CDC, places like the CDC and the WHO and stuff, where, yeah. where there's you know debate about whether things that whether the virus is in the air, you know, aerosol born, or whether it's um, purely droplet spread. And mm-hmm. there's there's you know it seems to be confusion and anxiety there. And obviously there's a huge shortage of PPE uh, across the globe. So maybe not in certain you know depending on where you are in the world, you, your centre might be okay, but it, um, you know, I think the world was caught sort of on the back foot there. So, oh. th- well, let's try and stick to some things that seem to be less controversial. So, um, I think it's pretty well agreed that if you're doing a aerosol generating procedure like in um, anaesthesia that's managing the airway, uh, that most people should have aerosol um, protection. Yep. So that means the usual sort of PPE, which I'm, I'm guessing most listeners would know about, uh, plus the N95 masks. I think overseas they've got different names, haven't they? But yeah, FP3, um, but yeah. essentially something that fills out the viral particles. Yeah, that's right, yep. Uh, the difficulty is, of course, what is an aerosol-generated procedure? Yes, that's and right. Just over the last few weeks, what is and isn't yeah. is changing. Yeah, so what... Um, and as of about this time last week, um, some guidance from our college, um, the Australian New Zealand College of Anesthesia, um, defined labour as being an aerosol-generating procedure. Yep. Um, but quite specific, it was the late first stage and second stage and third stage. Yeah. Especially if the patient's distressed. Yes. So there's a few blurrings of definition there. Clearly second and third stage is pretty straightforward, but actually what is the late first stage and um, Yeah, and that's right. And so and I don't know I'm just thinking off the top of my head, you go into a room with someone who is um, having very painful contractions in the, you know, late second stage and uh, you obviously they're often breathing a lot or and um, Mm But if they've got a good working epidural, they can be calmly, you know, watching the telly. Yeah. And um, someone in the first stage of labour who's got a bad infection and is coughing a lot might be spraying more stuff around the room than mm, someone exactly. who's... So it's, pretty, it's a bit grey, isn't it? But, it um, is. Uh, that leads to another thing which has been a bit sort of grey and unclear, and there's mm. only this sort of diff- differing opinions around the world, is the use of entonox in labour. Mm. So, you know, people, they suck on these um, devices to take in a big breath of um, nitrous oxide and, air and oxygen and then you know often they're blowing it blowing it out exhaling it sometimes they exhale exhale through the mouthpiece but more often than not mm-hmm. they just exhale into the room um so there's been a bit of debate you know is this a safe thing for women to be doing if they have covid 
uh, in labour ward, is this safe for the other people in the room, the mm-hmm. midwife particularly, I guess, because they're the ones who are in there for hours on end looking after this woman? Yeah, and I think you know, opinion is split across the world. Yeah. Um, <coughs> the UK by the um, Royal College of ONG and the Obstetric and Association say there is no evidence that it is an aerosolising procedure, therefore it can be used. And of course, if there is no evidence, that doesn't mean to say that that's right. It isn't an aerosol. No, there's no randomised so. controlled trials proving that parachutes work. Exactly. <laughs> so so um, you could argue it the other way, um, yeah, which is right. perhaps how um, other countries have argued it, like America, for example. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if you, if you read the, the actual wording in the guidance, um, it's often, you know, look, there is the evidence is limited. We don't have enough about it. Um, most guidance doesn't say don't use it, but maybe discourage people from using it or yeah. consider on an individual basis or consider not using. So they're very careful with the language. And I think you always have to think about alternatives. Yeah. So right. if you perhaps don't want an epidural or you can't have an epidural um, and you want some nitrous, um, the alternatives of that in someone who's potentially yep. sick with respiratory um, difficulties of giving them opioids may not be a great idea. Um, so, look, I, I, it's, um, we can speak for our own hospital and, you know, we've made a decision about nitrous here. Um, but I think you have to think of individuals. We're very much encouraging epidurals for other reasons. Yep. Um, but a short period of nitrous oxide, as long as you've got a filter. Um, yeah, that's right. So you need to have a viral filter on the uh, internox circuit. Yeah. Or the, or the mouthpiece. And, um, yep. Uh, but like you say, you know, if you're huffing and puffing and um, in pain with or without an epidural or internox or any other yeah. type of pain relief, there's always a risk yep. potentially of aerosolisation. Um, and that's right. In some jurisdictions, it's easy for us to say no nitrous oxide if we're in a big teaching hospital in, in a big city. There's, mm-hmm. It's easy to get epidurals, there's 24-7 coverage and or remifentanil PCAs, mm-hmm. etc. Uh, but in, certainly in some rural locations around the globe and here in Australia and uh, and New Zealand, et cetera, you know, they don't have that um, ability. And so if you take away nitrous oxide, especially from women who aren't known to be positive, so mm. maybe just, say, you know, it's just generally taking it away from your labour completely, um, that has implications for, for, for the other women you know, who mm. are coming through who aren't actually COVID positive. Um, and the difficulty yeah. is when um, numbers in the community start rising, it's That's right, working yeah. out actually who is and who isn't COVID yes. positive. There's a really interesting letter just published a couple of days ago in the New England Journal of Medicine from New York. Um, And I think there were, over a two-week period, they looked at about 200 women that came to deliver in their centre. They screened them all for symptoms, and only about four of them had symptoms consistent with COVID, i.e. fever, cough. Yeah. Um, And they tested them, and they were all positive. But they also tested the other 194 or so. So there was 200 patients? Probably. 200 patients or so over a two-week period. Right, so 200 of them were positive. No, no, 200 oh. came, came through. <laughs> I'm confused. Pay attention. <laughs> two, 200, 200, oh, 200 delivered. Got, okay. About four of them had symptoms consistent with COVID and okay. were tested yep. and were found to be COVID positive. But they tested everybody. Yep. And the remainder, about 21 or so, were positive as well. So, wow, that's a lot. So the majority of people who tested positive were asymptomatic. So about 80% yeah, of their positive right. COVID tests were in asymptomatic patients. So I think yeah. this is really relevant when your community transmission does increase. Um, yeah, that's right. So you will have asymptomatic patients who are afebrile, who have no cough or other symptoms, yeah, who are so actually I think positive. You, you really need to adjust your thinking to your geographical situation. 
Yeah, so exactly. If you're in, yeah, if just you're keep in, things on the move and be yeah, flexible with how you're If you're in a place where there is a high prevalence in the community, then, yeah, it makes sense to get rid of nitrous from the whole label. Yeah. If you're in a place where there's very few actual cases and there's good testing in the community, like WA at the moment, uh, where we're pretty sure it seems to be that there isn't a lot of community spread, then it's probably not okay. You know, it's probably fine mm. to, to stick with it. Or an alternative is someone does a study. <laughs> yeah, that's right. actually know the answer whether it's an aerosolizing procedure or not. Yeah, that's good. Okay, let's move on. One of the biggest things that's been... Um, so we've sort of talked a little bit about labour analgesia, maybe we should finish that. Um, so I think a lot of the guidance, is, there's some good guidance just for anyone who's interested. Um, the best resources I, I can think of for obstetric anaesthesia anyway is um, the Society of Obstetric Anesthesiology and Perinatology, I think it is, mm. SOAP, the SOAP website. They've got some um, um, documents and guidelines on their uh, website and the OAA in the in the UK also have a um, site where they've... Where different um, institutions around the UK have sort of kindly sort of lent their their guidelines for various different um, obstetric anesthesia related things um, if anyone wants to go and borrow those and we'll look at those so most of them talk about using epidural or encouraging epidural analgesia early in labour mm. A because um, it can facilitate the, you know the safe management of a patient in the theatre uh, by avoiding a general anaesthetic uh, which obviously is the sort of thing we're worried about, you know, having to intubate and extubate yeah. someone whose lungs are full of COVID-19. It's um, thought to be one of the more high-risk things for mm. all, all the members of theatre. So if we can just safely top up an epidural and, and uh, manage any emergency caesareans that way, that's probably... Yeah, and probably I think also regardless a, of the risk to other people, yeah, it's, it's probably, probably a better for technique too. for the patient. You know, we don't yeah. we, we try and avoid general anaesthetics in patients with chest infections and, and respiratory symptoms. Exactly. So just trying to avoid that is good for both patient yeah. and uh, bystanders. Yeah. So too. Probably worse in their um, atelectasis and their yeah. pneumonia and their hypoxia. Um, so, um, what we're we going to talk about? So one of the things that is really we've struggled with is just trying to organise the logistics mm-hmm. and the the workflow of um, of what to do and how to manage patients who are, you know, in um, isolation and, and where everyone has to have PPE on. In the situation of, of which obstetrics is sort of um, one of those specialties where things can change rapidly and patients need to come to theatre in a hurry. Yeah, uh, and that is a real headache. Really and I, know, I think that seems, uh, to be, seems to be a real headache for yeah. other centres around the world and listening to you know, some, a few webinars and people talking. How do we manage this? You know, this patient with mm. cord prolapses or bra- fetal bradycardias or PPHs, where traditionally we've often just grabbed a patient and crashed up into a theatre, or you know, mm. no one wants to do that anymore, do they? No, no, and it's not just the emergent nature of what we do and the unpredictability of it, it's also the other teams involved. You know, most yeah. surgical cases involve a patient, a surgeon, anaesthetist, a tech, and some nurses. Um, with an obstetric case, you've got a patient that then becomes another patient that requires yep. a neonatal team and a midwife. Yep. Um, and uh, you've also got partners as well. That's right. Yep. Um, so there's a huge amount of flow and different priorities and different things going on. And, of course, this can happen at any time of the day or night yep. without much notice. <clears throat> yeah, so we've had a, spent a lot of time trying to organise our local situation I'm sure everywhere in the world mm. has just got to, you've just got to have a look at what you've got and um, think about how, to, how you're going to do it um, so we're, we're lucky enough we've 
uh, had a little bit of a downgrade in the amount of elective surgery doing so we've put aside a theatre which is stripped of most thing, mm. extraneous things and everything's covered in plastic and we've spent hours <laughs> deciding where <laughs> we're going to put a PPE on and where we're going to take PPE off and yeah. which doors are and aren't allowed to be opened and um, and how who's going to go down and get the patient and who's going to bring them up and how we're going to keep the notes clean and mm. um, what are we going to do if we forgot some drug that we thought we, we forgot that we needed or uh, or we can't get the drip in and we need an ultrasound or a patient bleeds and we need some carboprost and you know just all those little things mm. where it becomes a real nightmare getting stuff in and out of theatre uh, or if you know the the neonatologist needs some urgent help and someone has to come running down from the NICU to help them and mm. you know how are they going to get how are we going to stop how, think about, how are we going to stop them from running in in their normal clothes like yeah. they normally do? Mm. <laughs> Things like that. Yeah. So we don't have any answers for you. Sorry. Yeah. No, but, <laughs> but I think we if have, you could, um, you've got to think about that. Though. Yeah. Look, if you could strip it down to just one thing to focus on, and that would be thinking about all the different people in the team and just get them all trained up in yeah. PPE. And I think you know, think about the the orderlies and the midwives, perhaps that don't do this so often. Um, technicians, um, everybody needs to take care of themselves. And, yep. and I think that would be where you want to spend your time. Yeah, and doing some simulated cases where you pretend, you know, you simulate a, um, a patient mm. coming from somewhere like Labor Ward to theatre and then going back. Uh, or, you know, even if it's a, um, a surgical case, you know. Mm. It's amazing how you can get bogged and, down on and, little and things. How you realise like things like the first time we did it, we had a, someone with a mannequin on a trolley and they came up from our emergency department because they had a um, ruptured ectopic we pretended and uh, someone followed along behind uh, with a sticky note every time someone touched something <laughs> and left some virus behind and there was all these yellow sticky notes all, all the way through the lift and <laughs> in the lobby area so then um, this was like about five weeks ago before we thought about it carefully um, so then realised that just getting the patient from one place up to theatre uh, without contaminating the whole hospital or spreading the virus to everyone we yeah, walk past, it's, <laughs> it's actually quite a challenge in itself. Yeah. Uh, nowadays, we uh, now the plan is that we have a, a couple of people in PPE and we have a clean person who goes with them mm-hmm. and, and presses all the buttons, and um, and the security in the hospital will try and clear everyone out so there's no no other um, general public or other staff members in the way. Yeah, and there's lots of um, sort of guidelines developing that. And if you go to the Obstetric and Association website. OAA dot something, um, you will find a huge number of guidelines from UK hospitals um, at how they set up their yeah. theatre pathway, their epidural service. Yep. Um, and there's often the same themes there. So, you know, don't reinvent the wheel if you're just starting out. Um, take a look at those. Yep, that's um, right. And, and keep going back because they will be updated. Yeah. And I think there's, so there's, there's going to be, um, you know, it's going to be interesting to look back in a couple of years to see all the stuff we've learned from this. Uh, I think most of us will have learnt how to how to put on PPE and be a bit more careful, and wash our hands a bit better than we used to. Any other issues that you think we should raise? I think we've sort of covered all the main things that have given us headaches. Mm. Probably uh, we've had to set up a second encore because we realised that once you're stuck in theatre for uh, to do one of these COVID patients, you know, you're in there for two or three hours, even if it's a straightforward case probably because um, the anaesthetic team we've decided will probably be there to re- recover them in theatre for a while, at least mm. anyway, afterwards as well. Um, what about so um, it's hard to you have to remember you still have to run the hospital uh, you know yeah. other things can be happening in labour ward or require caesareans uh, as well so you're going to have to have someone who, who's completely separate from you mm. who can probably you know run around looking after the rest of the women in the hospital yeah 
And I think the other thing, just just going back to what we mentioned earlier, is, is trying to provide the same level of service and quality of care that you would ordinarily. I mean, it's difficult at the best of times looking after some of our pregnant women and the complications right, yeah. that happen. Um, but there is a potential where we just take our eye off the ball for the fear of perhaps going in to review somebody because of putting the PPE on, uh, maybe delays in recognising someone who's deteriorating. Yep. So I think we really need to be very clear on that. Um, yes. We're not going to rush. We're not going to put ourselves at risk. But we don't want some collateral damage from this where yeah. maybe actually we could have used some PPE to go and assess this woman earlier. So what we've been suggesting here, Roger, is that you know when people do come in with COVID, we're going to fully assess them from an anaesthetic side and other medical side, make the re- relevant notes, communicate those, so we don't have surprises further down the track. Yeah, that's right. So as soon as they are, it's recognised they're in the hospital, um, someone from the anaesthetic department is going to go and like generate an anaesthetic chart and talk to the patient, get all their relevant information should they need to come to theatre for a, um, an anaesthetic or a, sur- a surgery or need epidural analgesia, etc. And it's good to try and do all that in uh, the light of day when it's all everything's nice and calm, not having to try to do it on the fly at two in the morning when they suddenly um, have some complication and no one's ever uh, um, had you know had a chance to get well, no one's sat down and done all that, and then and you're under time pressure. Yeah, it's sort of um, just common sense, I guess. Um, yeah, okay, well that's good. Um, I've got one PPE joke. <laughs> <laughs> so um, apparently, you know, Heinz, the baked bean manufacturers. Um, they, they're going to get into the um, the PPE manufacturing um, game as well, um, but apparently there is, there's still a real shortage of PPE, so they're having to play catch up. Oh <laughs> Sorry, wrong wrong sound effect. <laughs> <laughs> I got the bloody punchline right, and I pressed the wrong sound effect. You haven't done a podcast for so long. Yeah, you've forgotten what you've only got I eight have, buttons to press. Now. I have forgotten. I have forgotten how to do a podcast, but I have got a few other people lined up. Um, I was going to do one about how to uh, with. Uh, colleague of mine about how, how to manage medical emergencies on in-flight uh, in-flight emergencies but I don't think it's very relevant now <laughs> so we might put that one on hold for a year at least uh, alright thanks again uh, Matt uh, yeah pleasure Roger cheers thanks for listening everyone Please go to the iTunes menu and subscribe to the show if you like it. Write a review. This will also help us uh, get seen by other listeners on the iTunes menu. If you're also interested, please go to our website at www.opsandgynecritcare.org where there will be lots of show notes and links to uh, interesting videos related to the topic that you've just listened to. See you again next time.